Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of Well-Lit Path. Uh, we've worked our way into Psalm 7 this week, and it, it looks to be the longest psalm we've tackled so far. Uh, I'm confident we can get through it in our allotted time. Uh, we are going to take a little side trail as we divert ever so slightly to some background story. Uh, before we do that, how's your week been? I've recently become what some might call a firearms enthusiast. Uh, this translated into everyday carry after some training and a lot of time spent getting to know my firearm, uh, practicing with my firearm, and educating myself on handling and using uh, said firearm. Recently, though, we went on a trip. And I found myself kind of looking up all the rules and regulations concerning like state lines, applicable laws. And as I was thinking kind of back on that today, it dawned on me, what would it, what would it be like if we had to do that from a morality standpoint? Uh, what if we had to look up morality standards for just like everyday life? What if they changed from state to state? I mean, it's kind of laughable. But yet it's not. We look and as society continues to redefine morality in light of today's accepted social norms, it's really not all too unrealistic. Fortunately, we have a single source for our guiding morality that is unchanging regardless of the times. This book that we're in every week together constantly gives us guidance on what we should be doing when it comes to God and our fellow inhabitants of this planet. If we can keep the first in line, we can keep the other in line pretty easily. Now, David in this next psalm was coming off the heels of a moral struggle. Uh, we would benefit, I really do believe, from some expanded background on the situation that David is most likely referencing, uh, specifically a look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, which um, just from my studies and things, many Bible scholars would agree was kind of the inspiration for this psalm that we're going to look at today. While we won't be going there to read the entire chapter, I would like to touch on just the story itself. Uh, David's been running from Saul. And he's been hiding out in various places, and Saul takes every opportunity he can to just try to hunt him down. And in the beginning of the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul is returning from battle when this little snitch comes to him and says, Hey, I know where David is. Based on Saul's conversation a little further in the chapter, which we'll kind of review, the same person may have also been the one that said, Oh, and by the way, did you hear that he wants to kill you? Well, Saul's enraged. He gathers up 3,000 men, the best of the best, uh, to go hunt David down in the rocky cliffs. On this journey of vengeance, uh, Saul gets tired, and he steps into a cave to take a nap. Well, little does he know that David and his men were already in the cave. Now, I kind of picture it like David's in this cave, right, with all his special ops guys, and his ops guys are like, oh, come on, man. God placed him right here in your hand. Let's kill him. Get it over with. We'll go back. We'll take the throne. Man, you've already been anointed. Just get some, David. And David just kind of nonchalantly walks over and cuts out a piece of the inner lining of Saul's robe while he sleeps. 
And as they wait for morning to come, David's heart starts to just beat him up because, you know, how dare he cut the skirt off the robe of the king? And he tells his guys, man, listen, I'm ashamed I did that. I I shouldn't have done that. We're not going to raise our hand against the Lord's anointed at all. And it seems that throughout this night that his, his guys were like ready to just kill him on David's behalf. And they were like, no, that's cool. You don't have to do it. We'll do it for you. But David's words that they shouldn't raise their hand against the Lord's anointed stopped them that night. Well, the next morning, Saul wakes up and he leaves the cave and David walks out after him and says, my Lord, the king. Why would you believe the words of anyone that said I wanted to harm you? I could have this very night harmed you and I didn't because I won't put my hand against the Lord's anointed. I could have, but I'm telling you, I didn't. Look right here. Here's the skirt of your robe. I was that close to you and I didn't touch a hair on your head. Let the Lord, David says, judge between us and avenge me of all the hurt you want to cause me, but I won't have wicked intentions for you ever. Well, I mean, Saul gets very emotional. He tells David he's a much better man than he is, uh, that David's a much better man than Saul. And he tells David that there's no way he could have done what David just did. He would have definitely taken the life. And then he confesses that this is how he knows that David is indeed the one who should be on the throne. Then he asks David when he does rise to the throne that he would leave at least one of Saul's descendants alive. And David says, yes, he would. And David followed through with that promise when he took Mephibosheth into his house long after Saul and Jonathan had died, and he caused Mephibosheth to eat at his own table for the rest of the days of his life. Now that we've covered that backstory, let's look at our passage in Psalm 7 in light of that context. O Lord my God, In thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor to dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded so shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes thou, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the heart's and the reins. 
my defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death, and he ordaineth his arrows against the persecutor. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. I'd like to point out here that there is a switch there between 13 and 14. In 13, he's talk, David is talking about God who has prepared for him, for the person, the wicked person, the instruments of death, and he ordained his arrows against the persecutors. Then in verse 14, it flips to talking about the persecutor and how he travaileth with iniquity. So I just wanted to clarify that real quick before we started working through this psalm. Now, we will work through this psalm a little differently than we have some psalms in the past with uh, thematic elements that are present and then move on to some application. Our first theme for the passage, I think we can find in verses 1 through 5, and we'll look at this as David's surrender. In these first verses, when we look in light of our first Samuel passage, and David begins with, Lord, I trust you to save me from those that persecute and wrongly accuse me. I mean, David's like, hey, there are people saying untrue things about me. They're slandering me, and it's caused quite a stir and put my life in jeopardy. They want to tear me to pieces both emotionally and physically. They're 100% after my ruin, and Lord, if you don't step in, it will be my end. Cush had not only told Saul, hey, this is where you can find him, but that this was where he could find the person that wanted Saul's life as well. Cush had it in for David in a big way. And the beginning of the psalm, the superscription is um, a psalm of David based on the sayings of Cush against him. So Cush is the one that had accused him. Well, David proceeds from here and asks God to search his heart. See, David wanted to be sure he didn't have any of that animosity in his heart. So the very first thing he asks is that God search his soul and see if there were any truth to it. That is not the kind of man or the kind of king he wanted to be. He said, Lord, if any of the accusations are found true, Lord, let them come for me. Let them tear me to pieces. Lord, make sure I'm not harboring these feelings in my heart. If I've mistreated this person or have ever even had a thought that may line up with what this person is saying about me, well, let them come for me. Lord, I rightly deserve to be persecuted and punished for those things, even if I've thought them. Let my accusers even tread my life underfoot like so much dust, 
if those thoughts have ever entered my mind. Now, the next theme we'll call David's justification. Because David kind of chuckles a little in my mind. He kind of just gives a little laugh. He says, go ahead, Lord, get on up. I know the wicked make you angry. So match and even go past their unrighteous anger toward me in your righteous anger. Go ahead and stir up for them all the judgment you've prepared for the wicked. The judgment that you've commanded, the wicked must face. You know, Lord, the people turn to you because they know you are a righteous judge. Get right up in front of them again and show them how mighty and holy you are. They'll rally around their holy God because of his holy justice. And Lord, the same way you judge the people, go ahead and judge me. Measure me and test me by the same laws and commandments you test and measure everyone else. Test my righteousness. Test my integrity. And if it's not what it should be, judge me and judge me swiftly. See, even in his justification, David is still wanting to make sure that he's lining up with what God would call righteous and not what he would call righteous. And when it comes to righteousness, we're pretty good at finding it in ourselves. Well, David didn't want any part of that. He said, check my heart, Lord. And if it's not right, listen, feel free to come on in and wreck me. If it's wickedness you find, let me come to end just like the wicked. But if what you find in my heart, if my integrity is what you expect, Lord, establish me the way you desire to establish those that are just. A righteous God looks at and tests not only the heart of a person, but their desires and emotions, their intent, as well as their actions. In the next portion, we see God's righteous long-suffering. It's here that David comes to the heart of the matter. He lets us know he's not arguing his own righteousness. David says, see, I'm not just, I'm not righteous, and he admits it right here. In five words, he reminds God, hey, I know I'm not any of these things. Lord, if you were to try my life and check my heart without my faith in you, I would surely fail. All of these qualities, these justifications I've given are not mine. They just speak of your power in my life to make me justified in your eyes. In five little words, my defense is of God. I have no excuses for myself. I would have these thoughts of murder and vengeance. I could never be justified in God's eyes. God would only find me wicked if not for his grace. God saves those that put their claim of righteousness in him. And then this is how he judges the righteous. Are you righteous because of your faith in God? Because if not, you're wicked and you're only going to incur God's anger every day. And you can't stand up to anger like that. And honestly, if you don't have faith in God, you'd already be dead if not for his patience and love. If God didn't restrain himself in the power of his own love, he would just sharpen his sword. 
He would bend his bow and make it ready and let an arrow fly for the destruction of the wicked, and God never misses. Sinner, if you don't think he's got every instrument for your demise already designed, listen, he has the world and all that is in it, every power of nature at his fingertips to destroy the wicked. But only for his grace and mercy are we not destroyed. He could let every arrow fly against those that persecute his people. How the world would benefit to realize God's not responsible for all the hurt and destruction we see in the world. When a child is lost to some horrifying crime, when a disaster strikes and claims the lives of thousands, when we look at the things of the world that don't make sense and the atrocities that humankind is capable of, we shouldn't ask how could God allow these things. No, what we should do is look and see that if not for God's hand of mercy, there would be no good in the world at all. Without God defining for us what good is and what it looks like, we wouldn't know what evil and wickedness looks like. We wouldn't know that loss is heartbreaking. And rather than blame God for the bad things that happen, we should blame a sin-cursed world and thank God that we're not all consumed by it. Without his hand on humanity in the earth, it would crumble like a house of sand in a thunderstorm and wash away with the rain. Praise our God who sees fit to give us one more day, then one more, then one more. And as we look at the next few verses looking up to the, leading up to the final verse, we see the contrast to a long-suffering and righteous God. This is the story of but for God's grace. Lord, this would be me without you, David says. I'd be wicked. Like a woman giving birth to a child, I would have had the pains of iniquity in my heart because in natural me, without your grace, that's what my heart draws to. And why do I labor in iniquity? Because I conceived mischief. I want wicked things naturally. This is what defines the wicked, Lord. This is what I would be without your righteousness. The evil I conceived and labored in iniquity to deliver to this world would bring forth nothing but lies and deceit. Lying to myself that what I had in my heart of myself was good, I'd if I would think like that, I'd be no better than the wicked. Lord, it would be like digging a pit to entrap my enemy, but in my own blind deceit, fall into it myself because my deception was so absolute. I didn't believe there would be any way I could fall into the same trap. Then this evil that I wished on someone else becomes my own story I've brought evil on myself in my deception and the violence I plan becomes my own undoing. And then David finally concludes with, a, concludes with a moment of praise, recognizing again that he can't be righteous, so he praises the Lord for his righteousness and that he's been allowed to be a partaker of it. Any of this could have been his story. 
He could have wished for the death of Saul. He could have zero integrity and have an ill reputation before God and man had he given into the temptation to take Saul's life there in the caves. He could have been like the wicked person who lays a trap for his enemy and loses himself in the revenge and despair of his own trap. Everything David speaks against in this psalm, he realizes could have been his story. Instead, he praises God that because of God's righteousness, not his own, it is not his story. Grace is his story. Mercy is his story. Integrity, faithfulness, respect, righteousness is his story. Because of God, David's story isn't his story at all, but a story that tells of God's love and long-suffering to a sinner just like him. To sinners just like us. And as we move into application, let's take a look at our story. Have you ever felt under attack? I'd like to look at the internal application of this psalm and the external application as well, and we'll start with the external. You know, Christians will throw around the word persecution these days, I've found. Especially coming out of the COVID era, some were throwing it around pretty heavily when we were told that we couldn't meet as a congregation. And I don't want to dig up any skeletons, but let's take a moment and look at persecution. In our day and age, the biggest persecution we will suffer in the U.S., let's be honest with ourselves, is the pushing of a post-Christian era of social norms on our way of life. While we are not a numerical minority in the U.S., we are in the vocal minority. And on a small side note, whose fault is it that we don't have more of a political voice? Maybe some of us God-fearing Christians should step up and run for some offices and be the change we want to see in our communities. I won't camp out here because it could be dangerous, so I'll just move on. In all reality, that is the full brunt of our persecution. The attack on a biblical lifestyle and the nuclear family, our church life, our biblical values. But let me ask this question. When was the last time any of us were rounded up and thrown into the arena for sport to fight lions, tigers, bears? I don't say that to make light of our martyred church ancestors, but to take the martyrdom we try to claim away from us. When last did a brother or sister in Christ that you know get taken and drenched in oil and burned as a torch to light the garden of the president? I would ask us to keep perspective. There are countries today where Christians are actually martyred for their beliefs in God, but America is not one of those countries. Let's take a moment and thank God for allowing us to live in this country and save the persecution rhetoric from when we're actually under some. Because I'm pretty sure the Christians under Roman Emperor Nero would raise a mocking eyebrow to our claims of persecution in the U.S. And another side note, even under the rule of that evil government, under the rule of Emperor Nero, God wasn't rallying Christians to overthrow the government. Well, I'll just 
let that one sit there by itself. Now, don't get me wrong. We do endure some challenging situations. There are those extremist Christian groups out there that give Christianity a bad name. There are fundamentalist groups and other groups that claim Christianity that have left people heavily church hurt, and that puts us on the wrong side of a lot of people. And with that, sometimes come accusations. Oh, you Christians think you're all so much better than me. All churches want is your money all the time. You know, most churches I know just want to get you into their cult. Christianity is all about wanting to control your life. No, you don't, you don't really want any, anything from me. You just want to change me so you can get like a bonus at your church or another notch on like your conversion belt. Then we'll hear, stop trying to run my life. Stop telling me what I'm doing is wrong. No, all you Baptists like to do is beat your children and have your wives be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Well, how can you say that God is love and hate people for who they are? Now, I'm sure some of us got little porcupine spines going up and down our back right now from some of these. But instead of getting all bent out of shape about these accusations, let's pause and look at David's reaction. Search our hearts, O God. Do we think we're better than the sinner? Is that the message we're sending? What is the thing that makes us better if that were true? Are we not all sinners saved by grace as Christians? Do they say that all churches want is your money because they hear us complaining about tithing or talking about how much money we need for this project or that project? Are, are we actually inadvertently propagating this accusation? And do we make it seem like a cult? Do we act like we let the church control our lives instead of letting people know that we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us through the truths in God's word? Do we make it seem like we resent God's desire to control our lives? Or do we show a joyous demeanor rejoicing in the reality that we get to follow him? We have the great privilege of following him. Do we ever make it seem like it's about the numbers and that we'll be rewarded for bringing guests to church? Like physically rewarded. Not, I'm not talking eternally or, or spiritual rewards here, but physically rewarded. Some churches actually do give out physical rewards for people that bring the most guests. And maybe the people that are saying that have been burned by that. Are we making it seem like people have to change to be a Christian? Are we conveying the truth that Christianity is the result of a changed life through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? No, you can come as you are, but through faith in Christ, you will leave changed. What have we done to change the mentality that Christian men are misogynistic and that we, and that we aspire to just needlessly punish our children? What have we done to show that we agree that women have equality in God's eyes and like men have a specific role in the family unit that has a place of honor and love. What have we done that shows that we aspire to correct our children so that we 
can contribute to a good, productive person that we can put out there to contribute to society. And this is a difficult one. What are we doing to convey that God loves the homosexual, the murderer, the deviant? Do we participate in what even we would consider hate speech? Or do we engage in a way that says, again, no, God loves you. Come to Jesus as you are. You will leave changed. Lord, search our hearts. And before we lash out because we're being lashed out at, let us examine our lives and see that we're, we are nothing without your righteousness and no different than the unrepentant sinner if not for your grace and your salvation as we yield to your will. Would we be any different? Would we have given in to our immoral desires and addictions if not? for God's grace? And in the end, if the wicked choose to just keep talking bad about our Lord and the way we portray Christianity and we don't find that we harbor any of those things in our heart, there's no harm in just simply praying, hey, Lord, I guess go ahead and get up, arise, and then sit back with David and chuckle because God never misses but also remember he's long-suffering as well. Our only defense remains God and God alone. And for the internal, I would say, man, how our hearts judge us so harshly. Hey, you're not good enough for God to really care about what's going on in your life today. Remember that sin you committed years ago? Do you think God could really forget that? Listen, you can't serve in church anywhere. What makes you think you're qualified to teach anyone anything about God? Oh, you can't be part of a podcast that wants to teach biblical truths or be a guest on one ever to give God glory. God can't ever really use you in church because of this sin he's already forgiven you for in your past. Listen, Christian, the devil loves to get in our heads here and make us doubt our worth. So let's let David answer some of those for us. Because without God, every bit of that would be true. Lord, you know how wicked I am. You know how easy it is for me to give into sin. You know I wouldn't be any better than the wicked. Thank you that I don't have to rely on my own righteousness. Thank you that you are greater than every failure in my life. Because heart, you're right. I'm not good enough. Christ is though. And it's in his goodness, God sees me, not my own. Heart, I'm not God so I do remember that sin, but he doesn't. He forgave me of that sin at the moment of salvation and every sin since then as well and every sin I'll commit in the future. And because of the power of the blood of Christ to God, that sin 
doesn't even exist in time to him. No heart in my own strength, I could never serve in a church. But my God is able to use me in any capacity he desires. And because he is all powerful, he will equip me to serve him in the capacity he chooses if I surrender to his will. God can use a simple thing like a podcast to reach people with his gospel. And if he wants me to be a part of it, I will be for his honor and his glory. No matter how small or how big any sin of my past, God can use me because he doesn't use us for things based on the weight or the size of our sin. Rather, he uses us based on the worth we find in him. Our worth isn't tied to what sins we've committed. Our worth is tied to the worth of our lives washed in the blood of his one and only son. And because our worth is tied to that, he values us the same as he values his son. So much so that he has made us joint heirs with Christ. And in light of these truths, we have no choice really but to close as David and say, we will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, not our own. What lips could even praise him were they not already made righteous with his righteousness? What song could we sing that he would glory in if it were not the song from the mouth of one redeemed by his grace and mercy through faith in his son? This is the only place we can praise him from. And in light of that, since David sang a song, it's one of my favorite expressions of worship to God. I will too. Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb. Amen. Hey, thanks for walking with me a little while as we read the word together. Won't you join me next week and we'll walk just a little further?